evening. I'm Senator Tim Scott from the great state of South Carolina. Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. This is episode 63. The issue, the Republicans attack Biden and their foil is Senator Tim Scott. Stay tuned. In the last week, we've heard a couple of amazing statements, but more of them came from Senator Tim Scott, who offered the GOP response to the Biden speech to Congress this week. I think it's worth looking at, particularly since he knows, Tim Scott knows, that this is not a racist nation. America is not a racist country. I'd like to go back to my own personal experience and wonder how it compares to his. As a kid, uh, I lived in the South Bronx, and I went with a bunch of kids to uh, an apartment to play, and we were in grammar school at the time. And I was playing a while, and one of my friends was Stevie, and uh, we're in the room, and the mother came to me and said, uh, I'd like you to leave, but you can come back later, but just don't come back with Stevie. Stevie was a black kid. He ran with us, we played with him, and it was the first time that I realized that in the North, even though I was uh, a kid, things were different. And what did I know about the South? Well, nothing personally, but I watched persons of color be washed around sidewalks with strong powered hoses. I saw people pulled out of chairs at uh, restaurants I had a sense that things were just not right and fair. And obviously over time that became more sophisticated. And by 1968, we saw Martin Luther King gunned down, assassinated because he believed in equality, because he wanted to be treated as the Constitution provided. He wanted that the Declaration of Independence meant something to him personally. And he, saw, he talked about how the arc of justice would bend toward democracy and toward equality. In other years, I worked for Jesse Jackson, and I got to see up close and personal how he was treated and how he handled those who treated him differently because he was a person of color. And I was also counsel to the House Judiciary Committee and worked with John Conyers, who was from Detroit, Michigan, and because of him, I met Rosa Parks. In other words, there, there's a long series of people who just did things that were important uh, for equality. And, you know, Senator Tim Scott, who spoke this week, is a person of color, but he has no profile fighting for any of these issues. He does seem to me to be using these issues in a way. So I was trying to think about how I would comment on his speech this week. And I thought of a couple of ways that the more I thought about him seemed clumsy. For instance, you would play his statement and then comment on it. But there are so many statements, I thought instead the only way I can do it is to read the statement and then make my comment on it, why, why I'm concerned about it. I also thought how would I compare this to other podcasts I've done. And I've talked to you about how on Sunday uh, in years past, uh, particularly while I was at Columbia, <laughs> you'd go to a local uh, coffee shop or something and you'd spread out the New York Times or whatever other newspapers, the Daily News, the Post, whatever at the time. 
and uh, you might comment on it and uh, do that while you're having a bagel and a schmear. So, but that didn't really fit this. So this is more like what I might do in court if a judge says, well, what do you think of that document, Mr. Flannery? And um, I've looked at this document, uh, not as much as I might look at a pleading in a court case. And you have to realize, if, if you don't already know it, that after Biden addressed Congress, this was the Republican response to what Biden said. And I'd like to start with in the third paragraph, and I'm gonna to try to make this as efficient as I can because it's, a, it's an eight page address in tiny type. So you have some idea how long it is and not all of it is worth commenting on or, or is duplicative of different ideas. The first sentence that he says that really bothers me is he said, our president seems like a good man, seems like a good man. Well, if someone seems like a good man, you're saying he's not, right? So the first thing he is saying is attacking the president of the United States in an address in which he's complaining about the president not uniting them together. He seems like a good man. The second sentence after that is his speech was full of good words. Meaning what? That he didn't mean them? That underlying them is something else? Some sort of uh, deception? Now, keep in mind, and let's compare, okay? Uh, Biden is a white man, and Mr. Scott is a black man, person of color. What did Scott say when Charlottesville happened? What did Biden say when he said he was going to run for office? Because he was concerned about the soul of the nation. Is Scott concerned about the soul of the nation? Is the Republicans he represented when he gave his, this speech, are they concerned about the soul of the nation? I don't think so. Then having dissed at the least, that's the, only, that's the best characterization I can make the president, uh, he then uh, taunts a little bit. He says of Biden, he promised to unite a nation, to lower the temperature, to govern for all Americans no matter how we voted. Yes, he did. And you are not accepting that invitation. You, Scott, you, the Republican Party, you're, you're not accepting it. But according to the polls, Biden is uniting the nation in a way that he, whom we'd rather reference by name, did not. He has united Democrats as compared to the Republican autocrats. He has united those who promote the general welfare, as opposed to the Republican view that all citizens should have the freedom to fail. Is the freedom to fail a freedom at all? Is that a failure of our government to promote the general welfare? He also invokes religion. Now, you know, I'm a recovering Roman Catholic, and I know something about religion, particularly since I was taught by the Jesuits. And I hate these faux Christians, these phony politicians who use religion as they would use any other tool to get at the voters, to play upon people who may really have a religious faith when they do not themselves. 
And my test for the faux religious in politics is the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. Do these people care about the poor, the hungry? Can they turn their cheek and not be angry? Can they work for the people? Now he talks about how first he was with his praying mama, then with a mentor, a Chick-fil-A operator named John Monitz. Now, what is he doing there? Chick-fil-A is, is not religious, and uh, some of us are aware of their uh, corporate positions against uh, same-sex marriages and homosexuality and a whole variety of issues. So he's sending a signal to America, hey, I'm okay. I'm the kind of Christian who discriminates against the same people you do. You know, those ones that we don't want to go to Chick-fil-A. Hmm. Now he also goes on to say, uh, he became a, a Christian to transform his life. Now, I think of this as misdirection, like a magician would. I became a Christian to transform my life, so you can accept me because I have faith. I have no charity toward those who do not, I don't know, fit the Republican profile as I do. He says he's religious, and then that's a segue into saying, but for months, too many churches were shut down because of COVID. Yes, a lot of churches were shut down so that those who prayed were not at risk because of the group and the spread of the virus. Now, I know a lot of churches that made a point of encouraging parishioners, their congregation, to stay at home. And we have seen those people who went to church and who got the COVID and died. There was a, somewhat of a minister in the south side of Virginia and he went to New Orleans because they always went there to play music and they attended church services and so forth. And he and his wife went out there and he went online and he said, don't you worry about this infection. There's nothing to worry about. Well, he caught the infection and his wife caught the infection and he died and he never came back to Virginia. This is not anecdotal. We have statistics about people taking this risk. So the Supreme Court has had two views of this issue. View one was, uh, well, this has to do with safety. So we're not gonna interfere with, and then the court changed and there were three new members and then they were concerned about it. That's not a way to make law. That's not a way to defer uh, to safety regulations. It is not against religion because the same rules applied to all the similar similarly situated groups and persons. He says he's saddened that millions of kids have lost a year of learning when they could not afford to lose a day. How many more days could they have lost if they died because they went without protection to a school? If my daughter was of that age, she would have stayed home. Uh, and I'd rather have her miss a year of school and suffer some of my tutoring uh, or just find alternative occupations until it was safe, until the all clear sound had come forward. Uh, we have too many people that act as if, uh, you know, they're children. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And that has become the official policy of the Republican Party and why? Do they really care about the children? No, they wanna free the parents. This is not about the children at all. 
free the parents so they can go to work, so we can have the economy uh, that would happen, even though people at work would get sick and, and suffer and so forth. And even now, when we're trying to get herd immunity, we can't get people to respect distances. We can't get some people to get the vaccines. We may have already reached the level of all the vaccinations we're going to get in America. And uh, we don't know how good it will be and how long it will last. So instead of considering it one of the tools of our safety, uh, some people think it's sort of like a uh, golden shield that protects our health no matter what happens. Republicans told President Biden that they wanted to work together with President Biden on his first program, a stimulus package of $2 trillion. Now, they did say the right things publicly, but the proposal they had was something like uh, $500 billion, a quarter of what Biden thought was necessary to go forward. And they considered that an overture to actually work with the government. Well, they were polite and they talked about it and there was no way there was going to be a counteroffer to such a low ball offer. And if they could have come anywhere up and described various ways of it, it might have passed. But instead, it was a budget resolution that did pass and has made a big difference to a lot of people. Now, here we are at a different time and place. And we have the comment by uh, Senator Scott that uh, we're upset about this infrastructure bill. Now, those of you who've heard some talk about it, if you want to take the time, you go to the White House uh, website and there is a summary of it. The summary alone is 84 pages on the White House website. Now, what did Scott say about it? This is how he characterized it. He says, less than 6% of the president's plan goes to roads and bridges. Well, that's not true. It's about 25%. And the program is a lot more complicated than that. It is a, a $2 trillion plan to overhaul and upgrade the nation's infrastructure. It has been described as a transformational effort that could create the most resilient, innovative economy in the world. It is a lot of funds, but how is it going to be spent? And they talk about it as it's like a wish list and so forth. It, it is very precisely targeted to what it's going to do. There are spending and tax credits that would translate into 20,000 miles of rebuilt roads, repairs to the 10 most economically important bridges in the country, the elimination of lead pipes from the nation's water supplies, and a long list of other projects intended to create millions of jobs in the short run and to strengthen American competitiveness in the long run. We are building an engine of change with this bill. That's what it's about. It's not some sort of pork barrel thing. It is meant to strengthen America. It's to build back better, which was the campaign slogan, and that's what this bill would do. It would improve wages, internet service, drinking water, and commute times. And it is true. It is not unprecedented, but it's been a long time before we've seen or done anything like this. When I was a young man, and I thought of comparing Biden to Eisenhower for his period of normalcy, Eisenhower rebuilt the interstate highway system. 
and he got engaged in the space race. And they passed the National Defense Education Act, which supplied the funds for guys like me from neighborhoods where people didn't have a lot of resources to get education. There were funds for work-study grants. There were all manner of science and math opportunities. And that was to build America stronger then. That's what it is now. That's what Biden is trying to do. And the spending in the plan is not one of these, uh, these, these quick fix things. It's going to take over eight years to deal with it. Now, they're going to pay for it in part. How? Through tax increases on wealthy individuals. And that's what we have to focus on. Uh, who is in this for the nation? And what sufferance, what penalty, what compromise? How much does it hurt to give to make this work? Well, let's talk a little bit about what it's going to involve. $180 billion for research and development. $115 billion for roads and bridges, $85 billion for public transit, $80 billion for Amtrak and freight rail, $42 billion for ports and airports, $100 billion for broadband, and $111 billion for water infrastructure. And that includes, by the way, $45 billion to ensure that no child ever is going to be forced to drink water from a lead pipe which can slow children's development and lead to behavioral and other problems. There, th this is a bill that would repair 10,000 smaller bridges across the country, along with the 10 most economically significant ones in need of a fix. It would electrify 20% of the nation's fleet of yellow school buses. 300 billion would be to promote advanced manufacturing, including a four-year plan to restruct restock rather the country's strategic national stockpile of pharmaceuticals including vaccines you may remember how we ran a little short of vaccines uh, during the last administration now there has been criticism that this program would also uh, affect uh, climate change that the roads, bridges, and airports would be made more resilient to the effects of more extreme storms, floods, and fires wrought by a warming planet. Oh, dare I say it? Global warming. They call it climate change. You've heard me before say I hate the use of these uh, tendentious words that don't correspond to the reality, which is the planet is warming, and that's what this is about, and it's causing all manner of problems. Spending on research and development could help spur breakthroughs in cutting-edge clean technology while plans to retrofit and weatherize millions of billions would make them more energy efficient. So the president, in his climate change approach, is seeks to modernize and transform the United States. Two largest sources of planet-warming greenhouse gas pollution, you know what they are, cars, and electric power plants. He wants to spend heavily on the use of electric cars. They want to spend $174 billion to encourage the manufacture and purchase of electric vehicles by granting tax credits and other incentives to companies that make electrical vehicle batteries in the United States instead of China. We can do it here. We want to construct a half million electric vehicle charging stations. That may be a tiny fraction of what we need, but we have to start. 
He wants to propose a clean electricity standard, which means we're seeking to generate zero carbon energy sources like wind, solar, and possibly nuclear. The plan proposes an additional $46 billion in federal procurement programs for government agencies to buy fleets of electric vehicles and $35 billion in research and development programs for cutting-edge new technology. This is government doing good things. This is government at its best. This is government building back better, which is the campaign slogan that he's changing from a political phrase into a governing reality. And then there's a $16 billion program intended to help fossil fuel workers transition to new work, like capping leaks on defunct oil wells and shutting down retired coal mines, and $10 billion for a new civilian climate corps. They want to eliminate tax preferences for fossil fuel producers, but the bulk of his tax increases would come from corporations generally. He wants to raise the corporate tax rate to 28% from 21%, and, and that's reversing a cut signed into law by the president whose name I'd rather not say. And then Mr. Biden wants to take, uh, raise taxes on multinational corporations, many of them working within an overhaul of the taxation of profits earned overseas. And that was included in he whose name I'd rather not remember, the tax law in 2017. Now, this is really what the infrastructure bill is about. And so how do you debate it publicly in a society that does everything in 10 second, one minute, three minute sound bites? And I apologize for going through this, but that is a, a faster way to describe the bill than going through the 84 page summary that's on the White House website or reading the bill itself which is, uh, that's a real choker, and I'm obsessive, and I probably will read it, but I'm not going to force you to deal with it. So when uh, Scott the other day said less than 6% of the president's plan goes to road and bridges, and he says it's a liberal wish list of big government waste. No, it's not. It's not a waste. It is a reformation, a transformation of America. It is, it is cleaning house and preparing us to be the toughest competitor on the planet, to be good to our people, and to be an example to the rest of the world of what we can do when we actually have a government instead of a food fight every day. And yes, I'm saying Scott's on the side of the food fight. He's not, he's not talking about what's right for America. He's playing politics. He's trying to diminish. He's trying to continue the policy of McConnell, which was what? Paralysis of legislation. We don't do anything. We just hurl insults. And it's dangerous if we pass these things and we actually please the voters and they have hope again that this kind of an administration is what America needs and they do not want that. They are upset about the next bill down the pike that uh, Biden spoke about during his address, the family plan. And uh, that they're upset that we would actually be taking care of people in America. What do they really care about? What they care about is that the people who bring them to the dance from Wall Street, well, those people, uh, they don't want to spend money on anything. They don't want to. Uh, pay more taxes. 
So they say that, and this is what he said exactly, he says, infrastructure spending that shrinks our economy is not common sense. It doesn't shrink our economy. If you can move faster on highways, if you have healthy people who can go to work, if the pandemic is over here and we can do things that other nations cannot do, we have a comparative competitive advantage with the world. So what are they really talking about? Because they're telling us one thing, but they really mean something else. All they're concerned about is the profits for the plutocrats, for the autocrats, for the people who are not we, the people. We seek to grow America. They seek to grow their bank accounts. Now, we make America more competitive, but it's competitive enough for them because they're getting enough profits as it is. And when you look at American productivity, certainly before the pandemic, you'll see how working men and women had increased the, productive, the productivity dramatically. But you know who got the benefit of it? The wealthy overlords. The people did not get a share in that. Now for years they did. But now it's been, you know, 10 or more years before we've gotten that share. And so their savings are reduced and the workers are more vulnerable and they're more subject to the whims of their overseers. When we talk about economics, we say there are, uh, there's land and there's capital and there's labor. Well, labor is an important component of our economic success and the Republicans and the wealthy in this nation would just as well have a new slavery without regard to color, whether it's the color of Scots skins or anybody else. If you're in the middle class, they're just pleased as punch to take advantage of you and increase the productivity and take greater profits. Now, he, that is Scott, he, he takes on this issue as well. He says, the president is abandoning principles he held for decades. Now he says your tax dollars should fund abortions. Well, you know he's not saying it that way. But if you believe in a woman's right of choice, as I do, it doesn't mean anything if you can't afford to exercise that choice. And if you can't exercise that choice, you may, these women may hurt themselves or will have unwanted children in a society in which the Republicans care everything from conception to cradle and not a thing from cradle to grave, because it costs. They want to give people the freedom to fail. That's what they want, because it means more profit to the people who brought them to the dance. He says, Scott says, nowhere do we need common ground more desperately than in our discussion of race. Okay, uh, I agree that. And then he tells us how he's been discriminated against. I know what it feels like to be pulled over for no reason, to be followed around a store while I'm shopping. I remember every morning at the kitchen table, my grandfather would have the newspaper in his hands. Later, I realized he had never learned to read it. He just wanted to set the right example. How could you know that and not think racism? was a problem in America. He then talks as a victim for not being uh, aggressive enough on behalf of the rights and liberties of persons of color. 
He said, I get called Uncle Tom. There's a magical misdirection in that. He's, the, he's now the victim for not fighting for civil rights and liberties and claiming we should care that when he doesn't, that should be okay. And I wouldn't describe him as an Uncle Tom or Uncle Tim or any of those words. But I, I do think you can't ask people to support your profile of civil rights and liberties when you seem entirely ignorant and indifferent to it, except for some token examples that we'll go through in a minute. He says in 2015, after the shooting of Walter Scott, I wrote a bill to fund body cameras. And he says, last year after the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, I built an even bigger police reform proposal. Now, who was in charge of the Senate then? A guy named McConnell, a Republican. He's in that caucus. That is, Scott is in that caucus. The bill didn't pass. And he attacks the Democrats because he says, well, you know, there was the, uh, uh, well, there was 60 vote. You had to get 60 votes, and we couldn't get 60 votes. McConnell didn't want it to happen. He could have made it happen. He just cha he changed the rule on uh, district judges and then Supreme Court judges and appellate judges so that it was a simple majority. But he didn't want this to pass. But he did want to have a vote so that some Republicans could have cover as if they cared about these things. As if they cared about these things. He's upset that kids in school are being taught, quote, that the color of their skin defines them, and if they look a certain way, they're an oppressor. That's not what they're being taught. What they're being taught, the talk, and I presume he got it from his mother. The talk is, if a police officer confronts you, keep your hands clear, say yes or no, sir, do exactly what he tells you to do, and as they get older, they tell the children because he may take violence against you. Uh, he then, that is Scott, says in his address, responding to, to uh, Biden, by doubling down on the divisions we've worked so hard to heal. Where is the proof they've worked hard to heal? There were demonstrations across this whole nation under the administration of he whom we prefer to forget. And a bill was proposed, passed the House, is in the Senate, named after Floyd, no action, paralyzed, never brought to the floor, never amended, nothing. And they've worked so hard to heal those divisions. Yes, they wanted to, <laughs> they want to arrest the protesters instead of finding a remedy. Protest is something that happens. Uh, you expel political energy when you have no avenue for review and reform. He then says, America is not a racist country. Not racist? It certainly is. Now, some have said the Vice President Harris has said it's not a racist country. Well, I sympathize with her saying that for whatever constructive reason she thinks. But this is a racist country. There are too many data points for this. Slavery being one. The Constitution was drawn up so they're, they're proportional people with no rights for the purpose of 
deciding representation in the U.S. Congress by the fraction of person that a slave represented who had no rights. The only one worse in America were all women. We had a civil war, and we have people today who still say, oh, that had nothing to do with slavery, but we have three amendments to the U.S. Constitution outlawing slavery and giving certain rights and liberties to persons of color who were slaves and, and who were even had to suffer badges of slavery. We had uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, which was a case out of New Orleans in which uh, a person of color was treated as separate but equal. In other words, I can tell you to go to the back of the bus. You're in the bus, that's it. You're getting the same treatment that someone else's, but you have to sit in the back of the bus. And that was true for years until Brown against the Board of Education and the NAACP brought cases because we have a racist nation and saying that separate but equal wasn't going to work when it came to schooling our youths as to who they were, reading and writing and so forth. We had Jim Crow laws, and Jim Crow was the, the image was of a, uh, a white man with black face. And so the laws became that, you know, this deceptive thing. Uh, all sorts of obstacles, poll taxes, uh, count the number of jelly beans in a jar. Uh, I'm not joking. Um, literacy tests that uh, were ridiculous and impossible. All sorts of tricks. And so we had, uh, and then after Board of, against, uh, Brown against the Board of Education, um, what happened there? Well, deliberate delay. <laughs> we had resistance all through the South and parts in the North. We had the zoning to keep blacks out of certain neighborhoods. The, the racism is incorporated into our legal structure. We had the Civil Rights Act that was supposed to help blacks, which has been limited from time to time. We had a Voting Rights Act. We now have, across this nation, uh, states passing bills that would limit what a person can do in terms of voting, and it's aimed at persons of color, and it's aimed at other groups, but particularly persons of color. I've already said the remedy for that is, A, to challenge it in court and the legislatures, but also to find ways to satisfy it, just as we did when the head of the post office tried to uh, discourage voting and delay voting when it was involved with uh, mail-in ballots. So, but you know, Scott says, hey, those reforms are great. Quote, it will be easier to vote early in Georgia. And uh, he also says again uh, about <laughs> President Biden, he says, the president absurdly claims this is worse than Jim Crow. It is worse than Jim Crow. It's out in the open. We don't even pretend anymore. The answer is to fight and to fight back. And then uh, there is an answer in the Congress. And here's a person of color. And what does he tell us? The Democrats sweeping bill that would take over elections for all 50 states, send public funds to political campaigns you disagree with, and make the bipartisan Federal Election Commission partisan. He wants nothing to do and nor does the Republican Party want to have anything to do with reforms of election that would make it fair and equal to both sides. How does he finish up? He finishes up two ways that I find uh, upsetting. He says our finest hour is yet to come. I think that is true if it comes as a result of Biden's reforms. 
if Republicans join us or enough Democrats bind together to pass bills that this nation needs badly, race only being one of the central, one of the important issues we have to deal with. And are, are we going to fail again? Because if we do, then that's not our finest hour. If we fail the people and their needs by these bills, is that our finest hour? No, I don't think so. If we pass this legislation and we don't slip backwards, even if it's compromised, then we may have our finest hour. We may be building back better. We may be showing the world that we are back. But more importantly, us being back for our people is also us being back for the rest of the world. He says also in conclusion, and this really annoys me because it's a manipulation of religion again, because everything he stands for and everything he would propose to do and the Republicans would propose to do stands in violation and contradiction of the Sermon on the Mount and the New Testament that bears the name of Matthew. He says, generations of America in their own ways have asked for grace and God has supplied it. Oh, that's right, thoughts and prayers. Magically it will happen. You should be free to fail. That is their message. That is a sick message. What are we to do? We are to find a coalition and we are to pass through whatever legislation we can that put, puts in effect what the people want, Republicans and Democrats, who are not elected and who are not represented and are not afraid of being returned to office. Because that is what America is all about. In conclusion, I think I can say, and I hope you agree, that Mr. Scott did himself and the nation a disservice when his response was to continue the sorry legacy of McConnell and to do nothing and to paralyze this nation at a time when we have a chance to achieve greatness, to have our fi finest hour. So let us promote the general welfare. It's in the U.S. Constitution. Let us do this without invocations, particularly false and manipulative ones of religion. And remember that the Constitution says we the people and does not invoke any deity, lest we offend those who either have a different one or none at all. We are a secular nation, not a sectarian one. And we work together and by that fact and by that recognition, we stand equal one to the other. And we do come one for many when we take that on. We have our qualities, we have our gifts, and those of us who have the opportunity should be helping others, not lying to America and compromising the Commonwealth, the people of America, the we, the people. And we couldn't expect anything less except that kind of a sorry message from autocrats. So I, I hope uh, this wasn't too long and uh, I had to uh, <laughs> improvise a method to go through a lot of the elements of the senator's unfortunate remarks. And uh, I'll talk to you again next week. So have a good week, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
are not afraid. And the young people taught everybody else a lesson. All the older people that had learned how to compromise and learned how to take it easy and be polite and get along and leave things as they were. The young people taught us all a lesson.